Welcome to today's episode of the Beam Podcast from Super League. I'm your host, Matt Edelman, President and Chief Commercial Officer. Super League brings brands and intellectual property owners into the 3D web, which is a massive collection of immersive digital experiences where under 25-year-olds spent a crazy amount of time, and as a result, where brands are now spending a whole bunch of money. The space continues to be dominated by gaming platforms such as Roblox, Fortnite Creative, and Minecraft, where the community creates the majority of the content. But it's expanding fast. We're seeing a growing volume of 3D spaces show up within websites and mobile apps, which means brands are figuring out they need to speak the language of 3D engagement on their home turf to even be of interest to Gen Z and Gen A. Beam looks at how and why companies are prioritizing these emerging worlds and the technologies that power them. We explore what drives decisions about what to build, how to engage users, how to amplify reach across channels, and how to measure results. These are big questions, and they're important questions, so we bring in experts to help answer them. I'm excited to introduce today's guest, who is an expert in digital marketing, Kevin Horrigan, president of Spinutech which is a full-service website design and digital marketing agency dedicated to developing customized and data-driven digital marketing solutions. Kevin also happens to be the creator of the Growth Fire podcast, where he features discussions with experts across the digital marketing landscape about the strategies they deploy to grow their business. So, Kevin, you are the first guest that I've been fortunate enough to have who is also a podcast host. So I've sort of thought about this as either I need to really be on my toes because you're going to keep me on point or you're going to make it so that I can relax because you're going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for me. Whichever way that works out, it's really just great to have somebody else involved in the conversation who understands what it's like to kind of be the one asking the questions. So I appreciate in advance your participation and you spending time with us today. Where are you, by the way? Matt, I'm in the Tampa Bay market. Got it. We're both in kind of sunny, warm climates, although I feel like at this point, it's just the beginning of 2024 and everywhere in the country is some temperature between about 45 and 60 degrees and either cloudy or sunny, which means there's no snow anywhere people want to ski. And it's not warm enough to be at the beach. So it's a really weird time. It's a weird dynamic. It was 48 degrees here this morning in Florida, and we don't do well at 48 degrees. But I know a lot of people who went skiing in the mountains, and they didn't see much snow there either. So I think, you know, we're in a different global warming, whatever period you say it is. But no one's getting the climate that they want right now. This time last year, there was so much snow coming that people were going to mountains that are notorious for snowfall, like Alta in in Utah or Mammoth here in California, and the mountains were closing down because of the amount of snowfall. So people's vacations were ruined because there was too much snow. Before we get into what brands are thinking about when it comes to the digital marketing landscape, I'd love to have you share with our listeners why you decided to start the Growth Fire podcast and what that decision meant to you and a little bit of how it's going. Yeah, man, I appreciate you asking that. And, you know, I've been in the digital space for 25 years, and it wasn't shortly into that journey that I've heard the phrase first content is king. And I didn't know, you know, 25 years later, I'd be on your podcast still repeating the phrase content is king. 
but it really hasn't changed. And as the owner of a digital agency, I'm constantly preaching to my clients, my prospective clients, how important content is. And I just don't want to be someone who's recommending it. I, I want to be a practitioner of what I preach. And, you know, the old phrase, you'll walk the talk, so to speak. And, you know, for years, I didn't practice it to the degree of which I was preaching it. I often tried to, you know, publish some blogs from time to time. I often was the guest on other people's podcasts. I did a fair share of social posts, had the opportunity to do some public speaking, but none of it was consistent. And as I shared with my prospects and my clients, you know, what content looked like, it was differently than what I was doing. And I wasn't proud of that. It created frustration, created anxiety. I was disappointed. I was mad at myself. I just never found a solution to curing it. And yeah, I've been thinking about podcasts and I decided my New Year's resolution last year was to start the podcast. And, you know, I found a cure to the anxiety and frustration I have by switching a habit I was trying to form of publishing a blog or social media posts in this. I've found the podcast to be my secret sauce of being able to feel confidently that I was able to walk the talk, so to speak, on the content is king subject. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think a lot of what we both do is help brands think about how to position themselves in front of either audiences they already know they want to attract or customers they know they need to buy their products or services, or we help them break into new spaces and reach new audiences. Content has so much to do with especially the second category that if you're advising brands on how to create content and the strategies to make content effective, but you're not able to show them that you know what that looks like, it really can be a credibility issue to a certain extent. And it doesn't mean you can't be successful, but it means you're not quite as authentic. So it makes a lot of sense that you took that to heart and decided to create a podcast that represents what content looks like for you. And uh, I would say we're doing the same thing, but I really admire a solo entrepreneur who's gone out and said, this is how I'm going to let people know that I like to sit in their shoes. And I know how it feels. Yeah. And, and you know, the struggle was real. I mean, I, I wasn't proud of the fact, but I wasn't able to find a cure to it either. And, you know, I don't want to be the person who doesn't practice what they preach. That takes the credibility factor out, as, as you just mentioned. And both of what we do for a living, it's an opportunity to attract people to the brands that we work for. And, and whether they're familiar with us or not familiar with us, whether they're familiar with the concept or not familiar with the concept, that's our job is to engage people who might be relative to the people that we serve. And, you know, podcasting was a way for me to get comfortable being able to practice what I preach in other ways that, you know, blogging wasn't hard. It just, I didn't find the ability to idea generate once every week, something I was very good at and wanted to continue to do. I found it frustrating to kind of come up with something every week that would be a topic. And my goal was a weekly publication. And so, I found out, you know, by podcasting, I could invite guests out there that the idea generation wasn't necessarily always falling on my responsibility. My guests could bring that to the table. And so that was a big help for me in my journey and so many other things I've gained from it. I've just really enjoyed the journey. It's almost been 12 months since I started and I've been very fortunate to be able to check the box and to be able to publish content every week since I started the journey. And now that content exists forever. I mean, that's really one of the most amazing things that I've learned is, you know, you put an episode out there and it's there and it'll be there until the end of time. 
till the end of my time, at least, you know, right. people will be able right. to see these podcasts and listen to them and, and hopefully get some value out of them. And sort of speaking of value, creating a podcast that people enjoy listening to, whether it's for entertainment or information or inspiration, uh, is not easy. Are, are there any early lessons? I mean, a year is is a fairly you know extended period to have committed yourself to doing this, but it's still early in the life of a podcast. Sure. What are some of the things that you think have been most important in terms of your ability to understand how to produce a successful podcast or resources that an aspiring host or someone like me who's about nine months behind you, <laughs> you know, can look to uh, to find their way through this space? No, I think it's a great question. I think, you know, being a guest in many of their podcasts before, I would get on a call that I thought would be an initial screening and get to know you. Is hey, we're about ready to go live in 10 minutes. You know, you have any questions or anything? And we went just live into a podcast without me ever meeting the host or having any discussions of the background and things of that nature. And and I, I knew I wanted my experience to be different. So I think the very first thing I've done to, I'm not saying I differentiate myself, I'm sure many other podcasters take the same approach, but I want to meet the guest before we have a podcast every time. And then I also want to know from that guest, just understanding their, their personality, what makes them tick. But I want to know they're giving me 45 minutes of their time and time is money, right? And they've got many other options to where they could go spend that time. What are they trying to get out of it? If they're going to contribute 45 minutes to me, I want to know what's important to them that they want to get out of that 45 minutes. And then lastly is I want to make sure that the podcast has as much value to them as it does to me. And so I think that initial pre-screening of getting an opportunity to meet my guests, understanding what makes them tick, where they're at in their career, who their audience is, what they do for a living, how the podcast might benefit them for giving me the time to do so. If there's anybody they want to shout out or mention during it, any brands or individuals, you know, that pre-game prep call is something that I make sure that takes place every time. And then I send an outline to that guest a week before we have the podcast, just to make sure that they're comfortable with the format. Often I ask some questions that might be personal performance or company performance. I would hate for a question that I would ask to be a conflict of interest to their employer, but my guests want to know what's helping them grow and they don't want to have a high level answer. And so it takes a little more time to do the pregame, but I think the postgame result is something that not only is better for the growth fire podcast that I host, but I think a better experience for my guests as well. I mean, it certainly leads to a lot of terrific nuggets and themes of wisdom from your guests and the conversations you have based on the episodes that I've been able to listen to so far. It has seemed that you know them to some degree before you brought them on, just based on the nature of the conversation, the familiarity, and your ability to kind of get quickly to some valuable information to pass on to your listeners. And I think it's working. And so far, I've been able to primarily have guests who I already know. And so I've kind of cheated that step, but I, I like it as a go forward plan. And, and Matt, my approach launching my podcast was exactly the same. I started with what I call friends and family. Most of friends and family, none of it were family members. And most of the friends were relationships I met through being, you know, an owner of my agency. And so they were really clients who had given me the opportunity to serve and to help grow. And, and in their journey, we did some amazing things together. And I wanted to get some experience with people I knew and I knew it would be easy on me, but also give them an opportunity to tell their story and get some opportunities for their own thought leadership and content publication as well. And so as I approached, you know, that friends and family network up front, 
lucky, very fortunate to work with some amazing brands as you do at Super League and in some amazing responsibilities and impressive titles with impressive brands. And very fortunately, they said yes to having the opportunity to to do those podcasts. When I started with with friends and family, I built a database of content, but also built a database of my own internal experience. And after then, I was comfortable to start doing outreach to people I don't know who I wanted to hear and have them tell their growth story. But they had an opportunity to see some of my past guests, hear them share their growth stories, see the brands of whom they work for, probably earn some social respect based on all of that, and then ask some people who I was very fortunate that got a yes out of those for some very recognizable brands and really just genuinely some amazing people. But underneath all that too, well, I might not have intimately known some of the guests, we intimately share a passion for growth and we intimately share a passion for respecting the opportunities we've been fortunate enough to be able to be present with today and understanding one of the ways to repay that gift back is to share your experiences with others. And so all of my guests, I think, feel very blessed and fortunate to be in the positions they're in today and recognize part of that journey is to share back those lessons so others have the same opportunity. And that's an unspoken, unwritten characteristic of the Growth Fire podcast, but it's something without talking about we all share. That's a really noble way of describing it. And it also, in a sense, is part of a narrative, I think, maybe intentionally or maybe not quite as obviously the way that I think you help brands figure out how to engage with their audiences. What you're really talking about is how do you create content that enables an intimate connection with its target audience yes. and build a narrative through the content that you release that grows that connection and deepens that emotional resonance over time. Absolutely. And I know that that's a way that you think about helping the brand's who are your clients, both current and prospects. Yes. I guess one of the hard things about it, right, is knowing whether it's working. Measurement. Measurement is so critical and becoming an even more important element of marketing campaigns every passing quarter, I would say month, but brands typically don't, unless you're really in the performance marketing business, they typically don't make big changes in a given month. They'll start to make shifts over the course of a quarter and maybe make some bigger changes quarter by quarter or half year by half year and certainly year over year. But measurement is hard. It's hard for us. We bring brands into 3D spaces where a lot of the measurement is unavailable relative to the measurement brands have come to expect in digital platforms more broadly. So you preach measurement, you help with measurement. Yes. Um, that requires a deep understanding of data. Could you talk a little bit about that and sort of how measurement has evolved over the past, you know, one, two, three, five years? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we're in for another revolutionary digital shift in how to answer that question. Obviously, from a consumer perspective, we've got heightened awareness on privacy protection and what consumers do or don't want tracked. Yeah, we got advertisers who want to track more thou than ever. And where do you find that neutrality of what privacy expectations are from the consumer's perspective, yet the appetite for the advertiser who's spending the dollars that help fuel all these engines to go together? And what's the neutrality of agreement there? And there isn't a neutrality that I'm aware of right now. It's still a little bit of the wild, wild west. And you know, for 20 some odd years of being in the digital space, I've said it's the wild, wild west. It just doesn't seem to get any tamer. Just when it seems like it's getting tame again, we have new discoveries of ways that it's going to reinvent itself again right now. And so 
going into 2024, we've got pressure to reduce tracking and, and pressure to increase the ability to measure ROI. And so there's humongous change on the horizon here. And we're going to have to satisfy both parties because neither one's going to let go with that expectations that they have of what they want out of their engagement online. And we do have to protect the consumers and advertisers need to be able to answer questions from their boardroom about the effectiveness of the advertising. How is it that you find a brand who cares about measurement as a signature component of their strategy and then have to give them what may be the not so great news around what is and is not measurable. Like how do they absorb that? Do they sort of just accept that they can't accomplish some of the things that they previously thought were obvious and necessary or do they struggle against it and ask you to work around it? Like, where does that land? That's a great question, Matt. And I think the dynamics individual for every particular brand, why has there been movement of where advertisers are going from a traditional advertising perspective into a digital? It's the evolution of the trackability that digital had the ability to do that. And, and there were points in my career where that measurability was far easier to describe where the metrics were coming from. And then I think it has been in, in different times of sectors. And and so the expectations of the digital is everything's trackable. And then we get into attribution and, and the opportunity to track attribution. The theory of it's there, the implementation and execution of it isn't the same approach every single time. And the expectations of our advertisers are different as well. And so on a case-by-case basis, I think we can open and honestly share what we're going to track, how we're going to track it, what we can't track, and how we're going to deal with what we do know and what we don't know. And then be able to continue to have ongoing conversations based on the dynamics of what we know and what we don't know and continue to evolve on how to fine tune every campaign to get as much information as we can to make as reasonable and good decisions as we can with what we are able to have, but constantly look to innovate new ways we can get a deeper level of tracking attribution to leave the unanswered questions to eventually become answered. I was just thinking as you were talking, there's all kinds of obviously different companies and companies, you know, come in all sizes. You have a small company could be defined, you know, in our world, everyone is a small company because it's a new space. So unless you're the platform like Roblox or Fortnite creative directly, you know, you're a company generally of under 250 people, in many cases under a hundred people, in many cases, even under, you know, 50 people, Super League is around a hundred or so. But when you're a marketer and you have a product or service that you need to get in front of your customer base, where is the inflection point in terms of size from all the companies you've worked with where internal capabilities around measurement start to be meaningful versus the need to rely upon an external partner agency expert who can run the tools for you, you know, does that happen at 15 people, 50 people, 500 people, or is it still pretty case by case depending upon the company? I think the answer could be both ways. And I know that's not the answer you're looking for. So I'll try to bring a little bit more description around it. You could look at size of companies, but maybe you look at it this way. I'd say not so much the size of the company, but how actively engaged, experienced, and deployed the digital means to that business. And the higher percent of commitment 
that a business makes to the digital, the higher expectations of measurability that come with it. I might work with a startup brand who's got hundreds of millions of dollars invested in, and they're going to be looking for incredible accountability, and it may have 50 or 100 people. I may work for a brand that has 500,000 people and not make a large digital commitment because it's got a great brand awareness and is just looking to do some general digital things because that's what it thinks it needs to do, who doesn't need that same responsibility or same commitment or same metrics or same reporting. So I really think it was less the size of the organization and more the amount of commitment that organization's making to its digital presence. The idea that there are companies who still are not leaning into all things digital because they're resting upon their brand awareness laurels feels a little bit off, but I, I know they're out there still. Yeah. So just beyond measurement, measurement only comes when you spend money because- Correct you're looking for a return on that spend. Although I guess the spend of resources to put yourself into the digital space is is also a, People, a way- People, media dollars, yes. Yeah, media dollars, man hours to create content, whatever it is. It requires budget, it requires budgeting, it requires companies to think through what they're willing to spend. 2023 was a really strange year as it related to budgeting. I remember this time last year, the economy was in a, really precarious state. And even though there are still people talking about the possibility of recession, it was almost a certainty one year ago. A number of brands really pulled back on their spending in the first part of the year. The recession did not quite materialize. Consumer spending continued to be at unexpected, reasonable, and in some cases, high levels. Yes. And so as the year progressed, a lot of the brands who had held back and anticipated deploying smaller budgets began rapidly deploying against their original budgets. Yes. So you had this hesitancy to spend, but then the budgets ended up not changing. How did that affect you? How did that affect your clients? If there are any specific examples or just generally some of what you observed in that odd dynamic? Yeah, I would tell you that Spinitex, we're a small company, but we're a large agency. Most agencies, I think there's a statistic, only 4% of agencies in the United States get to 50 people or greater. We're a team of over 150. And so we're down to a very small percentage of agencies that get to our size and scale. So our viewpoint from our client's perspective has a, probably a bigger scale of, of what it was. And actually, as we went into 2023, everything you said about economic indicators warned for you know a lot of headwinds, a recession, all types of things. But you know, going back to some of the conversation we had earlier in this podcast, we're a very data-driven agency. My partner often jokes, we're a data company disguised as an agency. Because we're so data-driven, as we went into 2023, the data and metrics that we were able to supply our clients made them actually maintain or increase spend going into 2023, which bucked the grain of many, many other advertisers. But we had data to support it. And back to, I think, part of some of your earlier conversations, what do people do when they don't have all the data? Well, it creates a lot of indecision, and then decisions are made without data. As we went into 2023, we didn't have that experience. As we go into 2024, we're seeing some additional pressures coming on that we didn't see at this time in 2023. But fortunately, when data answers the question, we don't have to argue over subjective opinions. But I warned our team and I warned our clients as we went into renewal last year, what we're doing right now is against the grain of what the industry is saying. And I say, you know, the large advertisers out there, 
the metas of the world, Google's of the world, their analysts are saying that there's headwinds coming on the horizon, but we're not seeing that. And I use the analogy, they may have longer range telescopes than what we have. Mm-hmm. But as soon as those long range telescopes and our binoculars catch up, that's where there's going to be some noise that's going to take place. And I think that's a little bit of what we maybe saw here is as we went into the end of 2023 and into some of 24, some of that increased the media costs, the decrease in some visibility of tracking. And I think quite honestly, I think outside of marketing, just the increase in wage pressure, supply chain issues, which created supply chain cost increases, just margins were being reduced at brands. And so what you might've invested from a marketing perspective at a higher margin, you maybe didn't want to make that same investment at a reduced margin, not because the marketing wasn't performing to the expectations that were outlined, but margins were being decreased by other business outliers that made going to market for those revenue dollars not with the same desire as it did at a higher margin. Interesting. I like the telescope to binoculars analogy, and it just made me think again about our conversations with brand partners. You know, a lot of consumer-facing brands trying to reach under 25-year-olds who are spending so much time in 3D spaces and IP owners who know that their IP is particularly attractive to younger generations, they look at 3D environments as a place where they have to have a presence. Right. But I think most of them are still looking at that presence through binoculars. Yes. I think they don't understand enough yet about how to ensure that what they're doing in these platforms and through the use of technologies that power 3D experiences will have on their business, on either a top line or bottom line or community building level. And we are huge believers and proponents of the telescope that's out there right looking ahead well into the future and recognizing that the comfort level young people have in 3D spaces today is going to remain a comfort for them as they age up absolutely and so that longer term view is so important to the future that we're evangelizing. Yes. I can imagine that if you're working with a brand, again, like we often do, who is viewing through binoculars while you see the telescope, it gets a little bit challenging to get them to take the leaps and the risks that you are advocating. Do you find that tension as something that data or your other practices can address? Or are you really stuck in that almost schizophrenic view of the world that a brand perhaps feels they need to have. When data clearly answers the question, there doesn't become an argument of opinion. When data does it, then you often get into people's different comfort levels, goals, expectations, risks, and things of that nature, where you start getting different people with different perspectives based on their different decision-making criteria, where you have this dialogue that goes back and forth. And so, you know, to your point about your under 25 target audience, who's going to be comfortable with your environment today and ongoing, I would have to say, you know, in my experience, they're not only comfortable with that experience of where they spend their time online, but they're going to be comfortable with the experience of the brains they engage with today for an ongoing lifelong experience as well. And the opportunity that can't be measured today, potentially, or at least I don't know how to measure, maybe you do 
But is is, is what's an opportunity to build that relationship today, but have that brand, you know, I hate to use the word tattooed into those people for a long going lifelong experience and the early adoption costs that it won't be that same cost at a later time. In my career of doing this for a long period of time, there's risk at those early adopters, but there's benefit of being at the opportunity for the advertising value that is today compared to what that advertising is going to be. The value that advertising is significantly more expensive at some point down the road. And it's their choice of to where they want to join in their, where are they going to commit? Is it with the binocular view or is it with the telescope view? Because at some point they're going to make that commitment. They got to make a decision as to where into that viewpoint they want to put their commitment out there and what the risk and reward benefit is for that. The idea of how much it would cost for a brand to acquire a customer at the age of 23 versus acquiring a potential customer who's 13, who you don't then have to acquire over the next 10 years, and wondering if there's any mathematical sort of approach to looking at that investment level. It's sort of fascinating in a sense, if you could kind of consider that investment in the future while you're also trying to meet current quarterly goals. You have to do both, but you're thinking about a small investment at the 13-year-old to a bigger investment at the, at the conversion to what's going to help fuel the advertising dollars to be spent. But we see really, really, really intelligent brands create new products at lower price points to be able to increase their customer base to bring evangelists to that brand longer life. You know, we see it in the car business all the time. We see you know, BMW going from a three series to a two series to a one series to be able to provide a car buying experience to the 23-year-old who couldn't afford to buy the three series until they're 33 years old. And, you know, we, we see brands all the time trying to compete some lower price products to be able to get that brand loyalty into that consumer and be able to make that a customer for life. It's probably not nearly as profitable of a sale at that earlier stage, but it's way more profitable of a long-term client relationship. So that probably starts to impact some of the conversations that you have based on the level of relationship you form with your clients. You are connected with and working for CEOs, CROs, CMOs. I believe, you know, from what I know about your business, what you've shared, you know, you're often invited into the boardroom, so to speak, and you're getting a chance to not just hear about what a company needs to do from a marketing perspective, but what they are thinking about as it relates to overall growth. Yes. And as you know, you have spent time over the past year and hearing these C-level decision makers consider what they're going to have to do to achieve growth going forward. Are there themes that have emerged and been consistent either across companies in a certain vertical or across companies at large, or just what maybe are some of the highlights that have stuck with you that you're able to kind of bring across your practice as an agency? When the pandemic started, it was panic everywhere. I had a significant number of our customers react to the pandemic with, we want to pause or cancel because nobody knew what was going to happen. We were agreeable to have our clients go on a 60-day hold for those that wanted to do so immediately after the pandemic. We did not have one customer after those 60 days wish to continue their hold. They all went back to current pacing. But shortly after that, we saw that the demand for digital 
significantly increased post-pandemic. You know, a lot of retail was closed. People weren't comfortable going out. We all know those reasons. We saw digital just skyrocket. We saw companies who provide digital solutions, services, products, whatever it might be, growing like crazy and, and hiring like crazy. But that growth curve isn't at that same trajectory anymore. Post-pandemic or three years past that, that, that growth curve isn't the same anymore. And I think no one knew when that growth curve was going to stop. We all just wanted to see, keep going like this. And we are making investments for it to keep going like that. But it hasn't still done that trajectory. It started to narrow down. So now boardrooms are trying to figure out how to get that mojo back, how to get that growth curve back to where everyone was super comfortable at this kind of trajectory when we've lost some of the fuel that got it to the point where it's going to be. And now maybe people do like to go back out and shop a little bit and all these other types of things. So we're just not seeing that growth curve. So, you know, long answer to your question, I think boardrooms are trying to figure out how to answer expectations of a decline in the growth curve, an increase in costs, as we spoke about a few moments ago. You know, obviously, you know, wage pressure has been humongous, supply chain issues have been humongous, inflation's out there. I think for the majority of brands that we work for, you haven't been able to offset all those new cost increases by transferring the price of what you sell your product or service for to offset all those cost burdens. And because of that, I think it's not just marketers that are being asked to defend their budget and what they're going to get for it. I think it's across all different business units. I think in the supply chain, on the supplier side, you know, maybe human resources officers are acting to reevaluate the benefits package to make sure we're getting all of it that we can. I, I don't think it's just the marketers who are being asked the questions. I just think that in this giant growth curve that the pandemic provided many of the companies in the digital space, the fuel of that doesn't have the same results anymore. And so, you know, there's just more questions being asked. It doesn't mean budgets are necessarily being cut. They're just not being approved without as many questions as it was before, without as many expectations being asked, without as much expected return on investment calculations. So they can try to find a way to get back to some of the performance that took place in 2021, 2022, that was maybe somewhat pandemic fueled in addition to other ways the business was optimizing. We've seen in the past quarter, in particular, Q4 of 23, we saw a dynamic that was a bit unusual. And it harkens back to one of the things that came up earlier in our discussion where brands essentially hit this moment, getting close to the middle of the year where they had to hurry up again to start to spend the money because they realized consumers were there and ready to fork over their hard-earned income to continue to buy products and services. And there was a lot of uncertainty leading into that point. And so there was a rush to figure out you know, how to reach those consumers. But I think some of the hesitancy and the trepidation that occurred at the beginning of the year occurred when the stock market had some trouble in late 2022. I think what ended up resulting was a much more deliberate decision-making process. I agree. And so we found that brands were still planning to approve their spends, but they took a lot longer to actually make that decision. So the crunch then, you know, sort of hits a service provider, an agency. We function in many ways like an agency in parts of our business. And suddenly our turnaround times and our execution times were compressed dramatically. And it really led to a, a challenging couple of months. And I know that's happened in other spaces, but how do you help a brand? You're there not just 
to be an execution arm. You're there to help them figure out how to manage this uncertainty. So how do you help them avoid putting the kinds of pressure downstream, you know, in the channels where they're going to activate that is ultimately going to hurt the efficacy of that activation? How do you get them to, you know, keep operating at a normal pace? The opportunity to really understand what their business goals are, not what their sales and marketing goals are, but really what their business goals are. And then how does the sales and marketing plan align to all of that? But if you just focus on the sales and marketing plan and don't understand some of the fundamental business goals, we may not be solving the right problems the right way. And that's where we lead to indecision and indecision means delays and all of those things. And so I think as we are helping our clients create the strategy, it isn't just about the execution to you just said, it's it's just about creating a strategy and then implementing and executing that strategy together with agreed upon key performance indicators of how we're going to evaluate the implementation and the ongoing execution of all of that. It's got to be aligned up to holistically what the business is expecting out of it and not just a small set of just maybe what the sales and marketing goal is. It's got to align all that. But I think that you reduce the indecisions and the constant questioning if you can make sure that your sales plan and your marketing plan align to that larger fundamental goal and have the support of others who are going to be asking questions than you would if you're just focusing on just the sales and marketing goal that isn't aligned and you're not aware of what the delays are. Going back to the company size question, that probably gets a little bit more difficult as companies expand and grow to make sure that that sales and marketing strategy is connected to the business strategy and the outcome that the business requires. Getting a little bit into the world where Super League operates, you've been in the marketing business, as you said, for 25 years. You have a successful agency. You work with probably a few dozen brands at any point in time. I'm sure that has meant hundreds, maybe even thousands of brands over you know, the course of your career. I mentioned 3D Spaces. Super League operates in this remarkable, creative world of 3D environments. Roblox is a magical platform for the users who spend time there and the creators who build experiences. The same can be said of Fortnite Creative, Minecraft, and even an increasing number of 3D experiences appearing in websites and mobile apps because brands are recognizing if they want younger consumers to care about who they are, they have to create some of these comfort zones on their home turf and not just, you know, mortgage that experiential engagement, you know, out to other platforms. So we see a lot of enthusiasm, but we're in it. I mean, you know, we're drinking our own Kool-Aid, trying to be rational about it. What are you hearing, seeing, encountering as it relates to brands broadly defined, CMOs, CEOs, more sort of generally considered? What do you hear about the importance to them of 3D environments, which again, I think are predominantly directed to attract younger consumers, Gen Z and Gen A? Does this rise to the level of consideration in these boardroom conversations, or is it still early? From our agency, which probably more sectors on the B2B space than the B2C space, it's probably less of a topic from the B2B side of things. But I would tell you this, our job is to provide digital expertise to help our clients grow. And that's what we know that's tested, tried, and true. 
but it's also what we haven't 100% experienced yet, which is on the next horizon. And so it's our job not only to introduce what's tested, tried, and true, but that's going to have a short shelf life. You know, I've said for many years, a year in digital is equal to a decade in many other industries. We can't keep recommending the tested, tried, and true. We've got to be experimenting with the new as well. And, you know, obviously, you know, Super League is somewhere out in that metaverse of where many brands haven't entertained the thought of having a budget for that. But I think that's where digital is always forecast is, you know, when I started my career, when I would look at what the, what the marketing budget was, digital was the last line item and it was 10%. Then digital was the last line item and it was 20%. Eventually, digital started to not be the last line item and it started to work its way up. And I think that's where your community is. You know, it's finding its way to be in the budget and it's going to find a way to continually increase its way. But companies like you and agencies like mine that need to make the introduction of that opportunity to companies who are trying to target your target market and give them an opportunity to explore it. You know, there's opportunity for that conversion of what's going to pay dollars to be able to afford the marketing. And then back to our conversation a few moments ago, it's an opportunity to build relationships with future consumers at a price point that they'll never touch again. And so... It's the comfort level of a brand and how it wants to position itself and what it's investing in. And is it the ROI for today or the opportunity for tomorrow, a combination of each? And there'll be different advertisers, different comfort levels out there. And I'm sure you're finding that with your experiences with the brands you're supporting today. It's interesting. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. You know, today's average incoming CEO for US companies is 54 years old. And the CMO on average is five to seven years younger. That places the CEO generally in the Gen X band of people and the CMO possibly in the kind of older millennial generation, maybe not quite. And when you think about the way that millennials and particularly Gen Z, can't even talk about Gen A who were born with you know a screen essentially attached to their hand. <laughs> right. They have a full number of births. Exactly. So millennials, when they were teenagers, they were introduced to multiplayer gaming in a profound way. Mobile started to take off in their 20s. And at this point, you know, they are very comfortable in any kind of digital space, whether it's 3D space or not. They know gaming as a lifestyle choice, a leisure activity of priority. And my expectation is that in the next five to seven years, as millennials become the incoming CEOs and younger millennials become the CMOs, that marketing dollars are going to move a lot more quickly yes. into these interactive, immersive platforms because those individuals are going to know and be comfortable with the amount of activity and engagement that can be achieved and the relationship that you can build with customers who spend time in these environments. We are seeing some of those decisions come to fruition even on the B2B side where there are companies building Roblox experiences. In fact, we have partnered with Motorola and launched one of uh, these experiences where employees who are younger are given a chance to engage in an imaginative and interactive 3D space in order to build a deeper connection to the company. I think it's great. I think that speaks volumes to where marketing dollars, even B2B initiatives are going to start to appear. 
I mean, it's such a great use case. And I think it goes back to boardrooms just looking to see where they can find a way to replace these trajectories we were talking about that we saw in, in prior years. But, you know, one of it could be, you know, retention of team members. And, you know, there's an old saying, turnover's costly. Creating that opportunity at Motorola to build engagement of their younger generation, who probably are a talent that they'd love to crew and keep for a long period of time, is a different experience that absolutely has a return on investment. It may not sit on the marketing and revenue side, but certainly it sits in the cost reduction side from turnover and things of that nature. And so, you know, I think as we're having conversations with marketers and, and trying to determine how to help do the tracking and measurements that we spoke of at the early side of this podcast, you know, the boardroom's asking questions across all departments and the opportunity to share some of these digital experiences to be not only recognized by the sales and marketing teams in the company, but to see how this could be transformed into other areas of the business is, is such a huge opportunity for many companies out there. So that leads us to maybe a wrap-up question, which is any predictions that you sort of have, not looking out, you know, five years because it's too hard, but when you think about, you know, what your clients and hopeful clients are going to need to be doing in the second half of 2024, are there a any standout initiatives, spaces, opportunities that you think are going to over-index by that time for the brands you you support? Yeah, great question. And I'm glad you didn't ask me to predict five years because I've always said, <laughs> you know, a year in digital is equal to a decade in, in many other industries. So trying to predict five years would be a half century to try to predict, and that's way too long to predict in any industry. But I do believe that 2024 will be a year that showcases the wild, wild west of the digital space. I think the what we're going to experience here, we're going to have to keep close ties and eyes on is, you know, our, obviously artificial intelligence and what that means to all different aspects of, of a business. It's not replacing people, but it may be replacing how people interact with the brand and how to help it be more successful. But AI will continue to find a way to bring value into it and where that ends up, I, I'm not sure. but certainly something that many brands need to be looking closely at. I think secondarily, this struggle between consumers' privacy expectations and advertisers' desire for data, where that neutrality is going to continue to ebb and flow is going to be very important as the dynamic there is, is very different, but neither party is going to change its stance on that. And the solution to how we evolve into those two dynamics is going to be a huge evolution as we go into 2024. And I think lastly is one of the platforms that haven't been embraced by the status quo today. I think what you do for a living is an example of all of that. But one of the new areas where we are going to find opportunities for growing audiences, engagement and opportunity for advertising to attract and build engagement. And I think, you know, you super league are super, super, super and a great place to be one of the next opportunities of where brands are looking to see what used to be tested, tried and true dollars, not performing to the where they used to, and how they're going to reallocate into the next expectation of where those advertiser dollars are going to go. From your lips to our top line, that'd be that'd be yeah. great. <laughs> so that's um, my prediction Kevin, for twenty twenty four. That's it. I like that. I like that last prediction in particular, Kevin. I I really appreciate you spending the time with us. You're a consummate professional, and having you talk about your work as a digital marketing expert and being someone who has taken that the next step to be a content creator and building a valuable podcast brand to help other marketers, I think is a real testament to you know your fortitude and 
ability to create some transformative opportunities for brands, you know, who rely upon you. And so it's terrific to have your intelligence, your energy here on the Beam podcast. Thank you very much. Well, Matt, uh, congratulations launching the Beam. Uh, you're going to do fantastic. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Super excited for what you and your company have on the horizon and uh, love to stay in touch. Thank you again to Kevin for joining us. Please remember to like and comment and share this episode and subscribe to Beam so that you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. 